Hi, I'm Paula Mir and welcome to Your Life, Your Way, the podcast. I'm particularly excited as this is the very first edition. This month, I'm in Munsley, a very typical and very beautiful North Norfolk resort. It has everything you need to get away from the very busy lives many of us have. A beautiful beach, you can probably hear the waves right behind where I am at the moment. A smattering of cafes, pubs and a lovely little high street. An ideal backdrop for our first programme, where I'll be meeting one of my guests a little later. Coming up on today's programme, a recent report claims Instagram is the biggest social media culprit for causing mental health problems amongst teens. We will be speaking to one expert who unpacks the good and the bad of social media for teens and has some excellent tips on what parents and grandparents can do to support their children. Sit down and try and talk to them about being critical about what they see online. Have a talk to them about what social media they're on and if it's making them anxious. We meet the man from Munsley who made a major change when he swapped a stressful teaching career for a new life making candles from his flint cottage next to the sea. One day when I realised that this stress was getting too much, Emily, my wife, came home and she said, well, shall we write our resignations? And I said, yeah. Also on the programme today, we hear from a member of our Facebook community asking for advice who feels stuck in a relationship where her partner won't commit. Every time I bring up the subject of living together, he doesn't seem to be interested. I'm very much in love with him, but I'm worried he doesn't feel the same. I'll be giving some thoughts on how she can navigate a difficult situation that many men and women find themselves in. And keep listening to learn how you can win a relaxing break for two in one of the Lake District's finest hotels. I think one of our biggest concerns as parents is how we deal with our children or grandchildren's time online. A few weeks ago, a report was produced that showed how social media platforms can have a very negative impact on teens, their mental health and how they view themselves, with Instagram being held up as one of the social media bad boys for teenagers. It's an area I know I'm very interested in. Our teenage years are incredibly important in shaping our view of the world and our place in it, of course. This impacts the decisions our children will make as they move into adulthood. My first guest is a man who spends much of his working life examining the impact of social media on teenagers and, in particular, how this can impact their sense of identity. Dr Harry Dyer is a lecturer at the University of East Anglia who has spent much of his academic life researching the impact of social media on children. I caught up with him earlier this month. It's a massive subject and a great concern for many parents and grandparents. Just how damaging can social media be on impressionable young minds, Harry? I understand the concern and I understand the the worry because it is very real. Young people are on these sites constantly. Uh, a report in 2015 suggests that uh, 92% of teens feel themselves to be always connected and always online. And with that constant connection and that constant access to social media, it's going to affect how they think, how they understand the world, how they act and interact, the sort of frames of references they use to think about everything around them. And the young people I talk to in my research do single out Instagram as a site they're very anxious about and that they put a lot of thought into. Sometimes it's easy to see social media as just sort of a splurge of ideas and and every bit of information we have about ourselves but um they'll often take about 80 images and pick one image to put up online and they'll 
um, sort of edit themselves uh, constantly and think about filters and think about um, you know all the sort of photoshopping they can do to make themselves look better they're really quite concerned about it and and what kind of impact do you think it has where teenagers and others are creating perhaps a, a false identity? If you think about uh, Facebook, for example, you know, we, we have the ability to like things and we were able to have this massive friend network. I know that one of my sons has mm. something like a thousand friends on Facebook. <laughs> now, you know, technically I know they're not all friends. Yeah, it's exactly that. The, the, the terminology of friend, of, of calling it friend, by Facebook is a really interesting move and it has affected how young people uh, see what friendship is and understand the term friendship. It's no longer that sort of close relationship based off of geographical closeness or shared experiences. Friendship is just people who are following me, who are looking at my content and whose content I am looking at. Yeah. It's almost like creating a virtual reality. I think in some ways that there might be some confusion between what makes them popular and what makes them potentially likeable. Yeah, I think it's, it's a really great point that the young people that I talk to do seem to merge the ideas of, of uh, popularity and likability. They're searching desperately to be popular without necessarily thinking about likability or at least conflating popularity and likability. For them, I feel popularity is a lot more important or something that they're, they're concerned about. They want to get more likes. I, I run experiments in my classroom where I um, ask the students to put up an image on social media with a hashtag and we talk about you know, how they edited the images and uh, who they think it's going out to and who they think the audiences for these images are. And one of the comments that always comes up is, oh, yours got like 10 likes, mine got five likes. And they talk about how it's the wrong time of day to put it up and <laughs> they know the exact hour they should be putting these images up. So, yeah, they're very bound up in maximising popularity. And what do you think drives that need for popularity? A lot of what is happening online is bound up in the way the platforms are creating uh, what it means to be social. Facebook will see being social around uh, shared connections with families and friends and aunts and uncles. Twitter is about the now and, and very present and very constant understanding of um, what is uh, social and Instagram's understanding of social is built around images. But at the heart of all of that is the need to put out content that's popular, put out content that will get you liked, that will get you noticed and constantly push for that as a, as a, as a way of thinking about being social. You will appreciate uh, working at the UEA. Teenage years uh, are formative years in, in many respects. Is social media storing up further problems later on, anxiety or panic attacks or depression? I know that I was reading an article that there has been an increase in mental health issues for that demographic between 18 and 25. And I know in the coaching and work that I do, um, I'm seeing more people who get stuck or the self-esteem and that confidence mm -hmm. for them has really begun to be an issue as they go into the world of work and perhaps the real world as they leave some of the virtual world behind. Yeah, I think social media is a large player, but I mm -hmm. definitely feel that a, a large part of that can be put down to the importance they put on certain aspects of their identity and the way they think about who they are in the world and the way they think about what it is to be social or to be popular. It's always hard 
academically to isolate mm-hmm. one specific factor that affects mental health. But it, it, it is clear from the statistics that there is an increase in mental health issues with young people. They are very anxious. They're very nervous about how they will be seen and how they will be perceived. And they put a lot of thought into it. So mm-hmm. I, I don't find it a, a hard stretch to think that it does affect their mental health. What tips would you give to parents or, or grandparents when they're talking about this to their children and trying to educate them on, on the safety and, and really how to use it, I suppose, it healthily as much as anything? Yeah, I think that's. I think that that hits the nail on its on, on the head when you suggest that you're not going to stop them being on these platforms. And if anything, it's nice for them to have the freedom to go out and explore, a bit like their grandparents and parents did out in in the woods or down the road or wherever, you know, down the cricket park or whatever. Kids are doing that online now. Yes, it's to a much broader audience. And yes, there are consequences. And you need to have real talks with young people about who's able to see their content and what it means for this to be out there publicly. But in terms of the tips that I give parents and grandparents to think about how their young people are using social media, I'd say there's a a lot to be said for curating social media feeds. Uh, And by that, I mean choosing to follow particular types of people and particular types of accounts. I've talked to people in my research who made an active choice to stop following fitness inspirations and and models and and images of uh, bodies that made them feel negatively about themselves and instead started following images of countrysides and of cats and dogs and things that brought them joy. So I suggest that parents and grandparents talk to their kids about potentially suggesting that they follow maybe one or two nice accounts like National Geographic or something like that. Try and get them to, to think about uh, and to see other things in their feed because they're going to be looking at it a lot. Try and maybe diversify what they're seeing and also have talks to them about digital literacy is what we're calling it, the buzzword at the moment. Okay. But all that means is sitting down with young people and teaching them to be critical of what they see. As I say, they're very critical. They're very aware that these are edited images, but they they need to be aware of what's real what's not real um, how to understand uh, and read websites and how to understand and read what is real news and what's fake news and I mean they're they're getting this more and more in the classroom which is great there's a push for Mm -hmm. digital literacy in the classroom but sit down and try and talk to them about being critical about what they see online have a talk to them about what social media they're on and if it's making them anxious That's Harry T. Dyer, and you can see more of that interview on my website, paulamir.com. I've taken a short walk off the beach into the Corner House Cafe, and it was in this cafe a few months ago where I came across my next guest. Well, I didn't actually meet him in here. I bought one of his candles from the cafe counter. But as lovely as it is, it wasn't the candle that really caught my attention. It was his story that was written next to where the candles were on sale. It was a story of choice, change and passion. Jeff Thomas was a history teacher who, like many teachers, found his life was being consumed by stress. One day, he made a dramatic decision to sell up his house in the south of England, move to the North Norfolk coast and sell candles for a living. I met him in his beautiful Flint house next to the sea to find out more. So, Jeff, I understand you got into making candles originally at a very early age. 
Yes, that's that's uh, correct. Um, I think when I was about five, I was brought uh, was brought a candle making kit, and uh, from that day onwards, I, I really enjoyed making candles. Uh, I haven't made them all of my life, to be fair, but. Um, when I was a young child, I made lots. And then when I was in my early 20s, I actually ran a candle making business then, which I in the end gave up because I wanted to go on to do other things. So as part of those other things you went on to do was to become a teacher. It was indeed. Um, when I got to about the age of 25, I decided I needed to get a proper job rather than just uh, doing my own thing. Um, and it was a lot of fun uh, for a while. Um, but I needed to make a change. I'm a big believer that life is full of um, kind of slots in your life, that you do something for a while and then after a while you stop and maybe change and do something else. And for me at that point in time, I, I really felt that I needed to get a proper career as maybe it was expected of me. I, I don't quite know why I did that, but um, I was teaching for kind of nearly 15 years. So I think that does say something about the profession. Mm -hmm. It's um, I, I think the longest I held down a job before becoming a teacher was probably about four months <laughs> <laughs> so that was quite a success then so and I understand your wife's a teacher and you were both living down in Brighton at the time yes uh, we, we met through teaching many years yeah. ago but that's another story um, and we, we were both teaching and, and again started to experience the same levels of stress that were kind of creeping into our lives our day was completely consumed by our jobs and that was a, a major problem in the end we got to a point where we thought do is this how we want to live our lives is this the lifestyle that we wanted um and we realized that it, it wasn't actually the lifestyle that we wanted it wasn't our dream lifestyle so then we came up with a plan to uh kind of change our lifestyle completely uh, not not just mine and not just like a change of career it's like the whole thing would have to change if I take you back to that time when you decided, so your wife and you, you're in teaching, you're in your house in Brighton and you're discussing there's got to be more to life than this. And, you know, it was obviously impacting your health and thinking about your future, uh, where you were going to go with that. What was the point where you decided, right, we're going to do it? And what process, if any, did you go through in your own mind or together that made you press a button or, or kind of step off the edge with it? There was uh, there was kind of two distinct moments. There was the kind of phase one moment, and that was the realisation that we needed to make a change, um, but didn't feel we could just chuck things in straight away. Um, so there was a, then there was the need to kind of build up a a form of income that uh, we could do for ourselves. So that's why Wickham's Candle Company came about. Mm -hmm. It um, brings in enough money for us to live off and have, uh, but then lead the life that we want and enjoy ourselves and go out and actually enjoy our work. Mm -hmm. um, so that the first stage was that. The second stage was one day when I realised that this stress was getting too much. I kind of came home and I went up to, we had a little office, which was a, well, a spare room that was an office. Um, and I sat at the computer and I was just kind of looking at the screen and the keyboard without actually really looking at them almost. And I thought kind of, you know, it just all felt wrong. Like everything felt surreal. And then Emily, my wife came home uh, about half an hour later and we were just sat there talking. And I said, I don't think we can do this any longer. And she said, well, shall we write our resignations? And I said, yeah. <laughs> I think there will be a number of people that can identify with uh, your story in terms of the impact that stress has on their lives. And so it would be really great if you could just give us a couple of things that would help people listening if they want to make the change. What, what helped you make that change uh, to live the life that you want to live now and that you're really enjoying and is so beneficial to you both? 
Um, I would say that the thing is, is if something is not right, to realise that it's not right and then realise that you've got to make that change and believe in yourself that you can do it. I firmly believe that fortune favours the bold. The other thing I've noticed is I never, apart from things about Wickham's Candles, of course, I never put anything on Facebook because I feel like I'd be gloating. I don't want to, you know, this sounds really big-headed. It sounds like I could never put, like, you know, it's a Monday morning and, I, you know, it's 11 o'clock and I'm sitting outside or, you know, I'm just relaxing or we, we're going to go for a nice walk today because I just think all my friends that are teaching or working would probably end up hating me. So I keep a very, very low profile on Facebook and they, I think they probably, some of them think I'm dead. I don't know. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Well, thank you so much for joining us and sharing your story. I know that you will have inspired a number of people to hopefully make the change. So thank you so much. Oh, it's my pleasure. I love hearing stories like that. He made a decision and backed himself. If you have a similar story or you know someone who has, we would love to hear from you. Please do get in touch with me. The email address is paula at paulamere.com. You can also see a bit more about Jeff on my Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash paulamere. When you look at places like Munsley, you find there are lots of people who live here as couples and are blissfully happy. They've made a decision to be next to the sea in an idyllic location and live a stress-free life. And whatever they do is all about making themselves happy, and that's fantastic. But we all know that life sometimes doesn't work out like that, especially where relationships are involved. Each month on the programme, I'm going to be dealing with a particular problem or issue which has been sent to me. This month I heard from Kate. She wrote to me following a video I had posted about paying attention to what I refer to as red flags. Those are the things which happen that tell us all is not well in a particular situation, which we often ignore because doing something about it would be pretty hard. Here is what Kate had to say in her message. Hi Paula, I saw your video about paying attention to red flags and wanted to get some advice. I'm 42 and I've been in a relationship for the past 18 months with a man I adore and love to bits. We have great fun together and we're now in what I think is a serious relationship but he doesn't seem to want to commit any further than going out together, going on holiday and being boyfriend and girlfriend. We both have children from previous marriages and there's an emotional baggage on both sides but every time I bring up the subject of living together or making a more permanent commitment, he doesn't seem interested. I'd appreciate your advice on this as I'm very much in love with him, but I'm worried he doesn't feel the same and I don't feel comfortable rocking the boat. Well, Kate, I think when we're single uh, and we're looking to go into a relationship, we all have an idea about what we might want that relationship to look like. And I think when we've been in previous relationships and we might have either had a, a negative experience or even positive experience, we might be more clearer uh, in terms of the next relationship that we want and we might have some very clear ideas about that. Some people don't. And I think the key when you are hitching up with somebody is to really understand from the beginning what it is that you both want out of a relationship. Now, I know some people don't think about it and they get together and it organically grows and it progresses into uh, a better, stronger relationship and that's all fine. I think sometimes relationships uh, can be a challenge when one person wants more or has a higher expectation than the other person. 
and it's not necessarily wrong and it's not necessarily the, the other person's fault. Sometimes it's just down to a lack of communication at the very beginning in terms of what it is that you're both looking for. And I think sometimes if you can get to that point, even if the other person doesn't want to commit to a serious relationship and just wants to go out, as long as you are happy with doing that, then there is no real issue. I think the challenge comes when one of the uh, couples or one of the individuals in the couple decides or falls further into that relationship and they want more and the other person doesn't. Sometimes it can be hard to raise, but I really think it's key to because you don't want to be in a situation where you find yourself hoping and willing for that relationship to turn into something else. And in your case, where you can make more of a commitment and perhaps move in together, if that's something that he's not necessarily willing to do. I think understanding whether he has any challenges with that or whether he has any fears with that is a first step because unless you ask, you might never know. Now I know I've come across some people who are scared to ask because they're in love with the relationship and they're in love with the person but they don't want to mess up that relationship either. And I think sometimes that's down to a person being scared that they're going to end up on their own again or that they don't want to go through the whole dating game all over again. But the problem is, when you're in a relationship, if you're not honest and you're not transparent about really what makes you happy and really what you want, you end up compromising. And when you end up compromising to the point where it's negative for you, and let me be clear, you know, relationship is all about compromising. We might not get everything that we want, but when you are getting far less than the other person might be getting, if you don't address it, what happens? You get a, a slight passive-aggressive situation going on and or you start getting resentful. So I think my advice would be is however fearful you are, have the conversation because it might not be something big. It might be something that you can work through. And to be honest, if you find out that he's never going to want to move in together and or he only sees this as a short-term relationship, at least you will know because what you don't want to do is get to 50 and find out then and have you know eight years of your, your life wasted. So for the step of something that might be a little bit uncomfortable, it might actually serve you well further down the line. So I hope that helps. If you have an issue you'd like me to tackle on my next podcast, message me either via my Facebook page or email me, paula at paulamere.com. Well, that's almost it for this month. I hope you've enjoyed the new programme. But before we go, it's competition time. The Lake District is a beautiful place to visit magnificent scenery, amazing walks and some wonderful restaurants. We are giving you the opportunity to have a relaxing weekend break for two, staying at the Trout Hotel in Cockermouth. It's one of the Lake District's premier hotels, set in a beautiful location and ideally situated for you to explore all the Lake District has to offer. So if you want to tread in the same path as Beatrix Potter and William Wordsworth, all you need to do is to enter the competition at paulamere.com and sign up for my newsletter, which is packed with some great tips, the very best of my content from social media, all designed to help you live your life your way. Sign up today and you will be automatically entered into the draw to stay at the Trout Hotel. Entries close on the 31st of August and we will announce a winner in September's edition of the podcast. That's it for this month. It's a beautiful day, so I'm off for a stroll down the beach. Hope you've enjoyed the programme. 
Do keep in touch via my Facebook page or visiting www.paulamir.com. Thanks for listening.